Turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Mark chapter 4, verse 21. Mark chapter 4, verse 21, which you can find on page 839 of the Bibles provided. If you're visiting and you don't have a Bible at home that you can read, uh, you are welcome to take one of the Bibles underneath the chairs as our gift to you. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word to read on your own. Over the past several weeks, we've been studying the Gospel of Mark, which is the earliest and shortest gospel or account of the life of Jesus. It was written sometime between the years 50 A.D. and 60 A.D. by a man named John Mark, who was a disciple of Peter, the most famous disciple. Uh, It's understood that Mark's account is a recording of Peter's teachings and is sometimes referred to as the gospel of action. And if you read through it, you'll understand uh, why that is. You might have a hard time putting it down because he uses the word immediately, consistently throughout the book, going from one event to the next. Well, the main purpose of the entire book is to show the identity and the work of Jesus, who he is and what he is to do. The Jews in the day were waiting for a sign spoken by the prophet and the military the days of old. They expected someone who would conquer the land like Joshua, who would sit on the throne and reign like David, and who would bring back immeasurable wealth for the nation like Solomon. Of course, Israel was under control of the Romans at the time. So they could have assumed that meant Jesus would be a military leader or politically influential. Jesus began his ministry with a splash, with authority that had never been seen or heard, that sent demons kicking and screaming out of people in obedience to him. He heals many, and yet despite this miraculous ministry, many misunderstand him. And not just those who didn't know him, but his own family members think he's gone insane. They try to remove him from the crowds. The religious leaders who have the responsibility of teaching God's word to God's people disagree so firmly with Jesus that they plot with political, secular rulers to kill him. Well, it's just after all these events that Mark takes a break from the narrative to explain or record some of the teachings of Jesus. He only does this twice in the book. Discourse section here in is one that we'll look at. And then in chapter 13, which we'll get to probably in five years. Well, Jesus only teaches examples, which I defined last week as stories or illustrations that reveal the truth about the kingdom of God. Parables are stories or illustrations. They're like that communicate the truth of God. And we studied last week how our hearts are like various types of soil for the seed of the word of God. Jesus describes in verses 1 through 20 of chapter 4 different responses from the word based on the kinds of soil that receive it. Well, in that illustration, Jesus is giving an explanation to his disciples about the various kinds of opposition he's met with, various opposition that they would be met with, he sends them out to preach for him. 
Well, in our text this morning, Jesus gives not one, but three parables about the kingdom of God. And if you're worried that it took me 46 minutes to get through one last week, don't worry. These ones are much shorter, and I think we'll be able to get through them just fine. Before we read the passage this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, your word brings life. Your word creates. So we pray that you would give us understanding from your word this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your glorious truth. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Let's read together our passage this morning, Mark 4, verses 21 through 34. This is God's word. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, Even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. One thing I've learned about parables, preparing for this week's sermon and last week's sermon, is that they are, in fact, not easy to understand. Uh, In fact, they're very easy to overinterpret, perhaps read into unintended meaning. We've talked about how people had a certain kind or set of expectations for Jesus and the king uh, or the Messiah that he was supposed to be. Well, in addition to their misunderstandings about Jesus himself, they also had misunderstandings about the kingdom of God. And one of the things that Jesus is doing by teaching in these parables is correcting these misconceptions. So I've got three points this morning for each parable, and each addresses a misconception. If you're a note-taker and want to know what they all have in common, here's how I would sum it up. The kingdom of God may appear small and stagnant, but its growth is inevitable, and its future is certain. That's the main idea. The kingdom of God may appear small and stagnant, but its growth is inevitable, and its future is certain. And these three misconceptions 
or that the kingdom of God is a mystery, that the kingdom of God is man-made, and that the kingdom of God is massive. And I know that that one sounds funny right now, but don't worry, I think when we get to that part of the text, it will make more sense. I think it accurately captures what Jesus is saying. So first, misconception, that the kingdom of God is a mystery. This is in verses 21 through 25. Some think that the kingdom of God or truth about the kingdom of God can simply never be known. And what's clear from this teaching is that Jesus has come to reveal things about the kingdom. He comes not only as the anointed Messiah, but he comes as the very Son of God. And all throughout the book, so far, Jesus has made claims that are unparalleled by anyone except for God. Like when he healed the paralytic and told him his sins were forgiven. Or when he referred to himself as the bride of his people. You may also remember what happened on the day Jesus was baptized by John. As he came up from the waters, the heavens were torn open. The Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Well, he goes on to then preach a message about himself, which would be totally arrogant and inappropriate if he were not the very Son of God. But because he is, it's exactly what we should expect him to be doing. In verse 11 of chapter 4, we looked at this last week, Jesus, it's in the same uh, teaching segment that we're still in today, Jesus says something really important to his disciples. He says that they have been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And if you'll remember what he meant by that, he did not mean that they have been given the answer to some kind of riddle or special information that no one else had that gave them understanding for everything. Rather, what Jesus meant was that they have witnessed revelation, a revealing of God's plan in Jesus. So it's therefore the very arrival of his personhood and the message that the kingdom of God is at hand in chapter 1, verse 15, that has been revealed to them. Now, I've stated that it's a misconception that the kingdom of God is mysterious or a mystery, and I don't mean by that that we know everything about it. To put it another way, God's word reveals the kingdom of God. God's word reveals the kingdom of God. And just like Jesus is teaching, so the Spirit has inspired the word of God in order to give us understanding as well, living 2,000 years after Jesus walked the earth. I think it's important to define some terms briefly. What is the kingdom of God? Where is it? You might be asking. The most basic definition I can give you is that the kingdom of God is simply God's rule and reign over his people. The kingdom of God is simply the people of God submit, submitting to his rule and reign. And that's how it's always, it always has been. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned and they were put out of the garden. When Israel turns to other gods, they were exiled into captivity. But in the person of Jesus... The rule and reign of God is active among all those who turn away from their sin and who trust in him. That's what Jesus announced when he began his ministry, 
that the kingdom of, of God had arrived or was at hand. And therefore, he says, repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. The kingdom of God is present in Jesus, even though it's not physical or a visible kingdom. So then, what's this business about a candle and a basket? Tell us about the kingdom of God. Jesus says, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Jesus is speaking about old oil lamps that they used to use for light, kind of like the flashlight on your phone, but without the phone, part of it. And this image is lighting a lamp and then just hiding it or putting it away. It's like a photographer putting the lens cap on the end of his lens to take a picture. Or it's like me turning the microphone of my lapel mic on to then set it down and not speak into it. It removes the very function of the thing. The very purpose of a lamp is to bring light. Jesus asks a question, and he teaches through asking questions. But a stronger way of saying it would be, no one turns on a light just to cover it. That doesn't make sense. The very purpose of a lamp is to bring light to a place, not darkness. The whole point of a lamp is illumination. To cover a lamp is counterintuitive. Therefore, the very purpose of Jesus' ministry, and I think we can say about God's word in total, is to bring understanding, to reveal the things of God. More concretely, the message of forgiveness. God's word, just like a lamp, has a purpose. And its purpose is to give understanding about spiritual things. When you read through the Gospel of Mark, you'll see the priority that Jesus places on his ministry of preaching and teaching. Part of his ministry is a concern over his identity, which is why he commands demons to be silent or tells people not to uh, tell others about him so that he can inform correctly. So the question is, if God has revealed truth about himself and his kingdom in his word to us, and the purpose of his word is to bring understanding and insight, what responsibility do we have as recipients of this light? First and foremost, we are to be a people of the word. We are not to hide it away for ourselves, but to share it with everyone. We believe the message of the Bible contains the message of salvation, the way to eternal life, that though we have sinned against God, He provided a, a worthy sacrifice in Jesus who lived a perfect life, died on the cross and rose three days later so that whoever turned away from their sin and trusted in Jesus would not perish but have eternal life. That very message is not meant to be lost or private, but to be proclaimed. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, is what Jesus' last words are on earth. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is news. News is meant to be broadcasted and heard. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As a lamp's purpose is to shine, the word is meant to be proclaimed and received. That message is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
So if we're to use the illustration Jesus uses here with a lamp and a basket, the lamp is the word of God. The lamp stand that it's set on is the proclamation of the gospel and the light that it brings is the understanding and reception of those who hear it. Listen to the way that the Apostle Paul articulates our role as Christians who have received revelation, speaking about those who have not yet heard it. How then, he says, will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the very word of Christ. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is not an intangible mystery, but it is present in the rule and reign of Christ. And Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. The kingdom of God is present and still growing today, and it will continue to grow until it's complete and Jesus returns. The method of this growth is revealing God's word to people. The second application to us, recipients of the word, of this light, is that we should seek to know and understand the scriptures. Look with me again at verses 24 and 25. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, I read that, and I thought that this was some kind of spiritual golden rule, that God would show the amount of kindness to me that I showed to others, or something like that. But that's not exactly what he means here. We know how God deals with us. He has told us in the book of Ephesians 1 that he chose us before the foundation of the world, that he predestined us for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Romans 5 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not a result of work so that we may boast, as it says in Ephesians 2, not because of our righteousness in Titus 3, but because of his mercy. What he means is that the Lord gives understanding for those who earnestly search for it. So when Jesus says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, he means that the more you seek God, the more he will reveal himself to you. Those who humble themselves before the Lord and search the scriptures will be given greater insight to what the scriptures mean than those who only read it on bumper stickers. And that's true just about in any field, right? The more you apply yourself something to something, the more competent you get. And when you stop practicing something, you lose whatever skill you had, if you had any in the first place. For those who long to know God sincerely, not selfishly to get a leg up in life or to try something new, but to those who feel their need of a Savior because of the weight of their sin, and for those who seek to know how they can be made right 
with God. The Lord Jesus says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Did you notice the last two verses of our passage? In verse 33, it says Jesus spoke to them in parables as they were able to hear it, which means he spoke to them on their own level. He didn't overwhelm them with details that they wouldn't understand, nor did he speak over them, but he gave them what they could handle for the time being. And then in verse 34, he explained everything to his disciples who were patient enough to ask questions and were willing to learn. So don't be afraid if you can't answer every question that a non-believer has about Christianity. It's not for the theologians only to share the gospel, but all who have received the light. Just like a baby can only drink milk, we are limited in a specific diet of understanding based on our spiritual knowledge and maturity. But God's word also promises that as we mature, we will be able to move from milk to meat to more substantial doctrines. So immerse yourself in the scriptures. The kingdom of God is not a mystery. It has been revealed in Christ Jesus. So we should preach the word and be filled with the word. One interesting note here is that uh, the, the language that the scriptures originally came to us in in Greek has what's called an article in front of lamp which means a more accurate translation would be, is the lamp lit to be put under a basket? Jesus says elsewhere that he is the light of the world. This illustration uh, we know to be true throughout all of the scriptures. He brings light into a world of darkness. Well, that's the first misconception. Second misconception about the kingdom of God is that it is man-made. Look again at verses 26 through 29. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. One thing that regularly strikes me when I'm browsing my smartphone is the memories section in my phone's gallery. Uh, most phones now index your photos based on the day that you took them, and sometimes they will provide suggestions for you so that at one tap you can see exactly where you were or what you were doing years prior. This uh, is called Recent Highlights on my phone. And they allow these buried photos from five, six, ten years back to resurface, whether I like them to or not. Sometimes they can bring a joyful reminder of good memories. Other times they can make me cringe a little bit. Uh, but they're basically a timeline of my life since having a smartphone. And since having our two-year-old son, Elias, the feature has become an incredible way to measure his growth. It's a remarkable thing. 
he looks so different now than he did when he was first born just two years ago. He didn't have his golden locks. He was scrawny. Uh, He looked more like an alien, actually. He has grown leaps and bounds in a short time. But the amazing thing is, even though I've spent almost every day of his life with him, I have never once been able to observe this growth happening. But my ability, or inability rather, to observe this growth in real time does not mean it's not happening. Well, in the second parable, Jesus teaches that the kingdom of God is much like my recent highlights feature. And he communicates this with an image of a seed. But this time the focus is on the growth itself and how little man has to do with it. In fact, the growth depends entirely on God. And I say that because verse 27 and verse 28, what does man do here? He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. He sleeps and rises and it grows. Just like me and Elias. I sleep and I rise and he grows. But I have no control over it. In verse 28, there's a word that's called automate is used in Greek. I've already used a lot of Greek. I'm sorry. I don't like to do that. But it's where we get the word automatic from. And it's just like this growth happens almost automatically. That's the idea being communicated here because it's apart from the farmer. This is like what Jesus said in John 3. If you remember what happened, a Pharisee named Nicodemus asks Jesus how he can be with God. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And uh, Nicodemus is bewildered. And he basically says, yes, yes, but can an adult do this? Is it possible to climb into his mother's womb and be born again? And there's some more dialogue, and Nicodemus is just not getting it. And that's when Jesus says in John 3, verse 7 and 8, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I've said many times throughout our time in Mark that our job is not to control what happens when we share the gospel with others. It's only to share it and pray. Just as the farmer sows seed and goes to sleep, we must preach the gospel and pray and expect the Lord to do amazing things because growth depends on God and not on us. Someone one time asked Martin Luther how he... uh, accomplished the Reformation, and he said this, I opposed indulgences with all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did nothing everything. 
The Word does the work. Now, just because the growth of the kingdom and the salvation of others depends on God does not mean that we're not involved in the process. God ordained that His people would be the means by which this good news would spread to the ends of the earth. So yes, we're not passive, but this parable is a reminder that we can't manufacture the kingdom of God. We can't control its growth, how quickly it grows, or whether it grows just like a farmer can't control whether or not the seed grows or doesn't. We can come up with amazing apologetic arguments to reason with others, but no matter how hard we try, we can't reason someone into the kingdom of God. Our job is to shine the light, to sow the seed, and to watch what the Lord does. This gives us both confidence to continue in our faith and the courage not to lose sight of the hope that we have in Christ. That when death takes us, we will rise with Christ in the heavenly places, join with the congregation made up of all tribes and tongues and nations, that great multitude around the throne, praising the Lamb that was slain. So we can have, and Christians should have, a kind of optimism about the eternal future, knowing the kingdom of God does not rest on a presidential election or a Supreme Court decision or a cultural trend or anything in our own experience. God will accomplish His purposes, and He'll do it while we sleep. Our little involvement in His plan does not take away from His power to accomplish it. This is one of the reasons why we pray for other churches every week in the pastoral prayer. Uh, Certainly we want our own church to thrive, but we don't just want our own church to grow uh, in health or numerically. We want to see gospel churches all over the world. And if, for whatever reason, if the Lord would to shut this church down, that would not be a failure for the kingdom of God. So we pray for growth in other churches as well as our own. Notice that the growth of the kingdom of God in this parable, happens in stages. Meaning the growth of the kingdom is not something that happens all at once or overnight. In fact, it likely will take a long time. And just because you can't observe that growth with your eyes does not mean it's not happening. Well, that's the second misconception. The third and final misconception about the kingdom of God is that it will appear to be massive. Now, don't get me wrong. When, when the kingdom of God is fully matured and complete, then absolutely it will be the largest kingdom known to man. Isn't that what Jesus is saying here when he says that it, the seed is going to grow into the largest plant in the garden? Well, yes, I think it is. And yet what's most fascinating about it is that everyone would have already assumed that. Of course they had big dreams and expectations about the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom after all. But what was not assumed was that the kingdom would start out small. And so Jesus uses this illustration of the mustard seed to drive home the point. He says in verse 31, It is like a grain of mustard seed which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. And this is one of those verses that critics of the Bible, of course, point to 
and say, aha, here is an obvious mistake. It's not the smallest seed in the world. There are still smaller. Uh, because there are, in fact, smaller seeds. And they use this to point to uh, a spot in the Bible where they say there are mistakes in it. It is with error, and Jesus did not know everything, or else he would have mentioned whatever the smallest seed in the world is. But people who think that are missing the point. They're misunderstanding what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not trying to become a footnote in a botany textbook. Jesus is using a literary technique. He's using hyperbole to communicate the contrast between what the kingdom of God looks like from its beginning to its end. He's using the mustard seed because it was common for them. It was something they would have known and experienced in their life. He was using an idiom well known by Jews to show how small and insignificant the kingdom might appear at first, but would eventually outgrow everything around it. You know, there's a lot about Christianity that appears unimpressive, especially to the world. Jesus was born in a stable. Uh, As David prayed earlier, he was born of a virgin, supposedly. He was the son of a carpenter. He had a small following of fishermen and a tax collector and a number of other no-names. He had some decent crowds, but his ministry only lasted three years, and it ended on a Roman cross. But this image of smallness, I think, is to help the disciples, and especially the early church, to see what we know to be true today, that Jesus didn't come to seize political or military control. And if he had, then he was a bad bet, crucified by the Romans next to two other criminals rejected by his people. But Jesus tells them that God has revealed the secret of the kingdom to them, that it is arrived with his presence, and despite the appearance of smallness and insignificance, its growth will prove to be monumental in time. That's an interesting example, isn't it? If someone were to ask you what the kingdom of God was like, what would you, what would you say? What kind of illustration would you come up with? I assume something large and dramatic, like an erupting volcano that covers everything around it, or a shooting star that never dies out and can be seen by all the cosmos, a bolt of lightning that appears in an instant and lights up the sky. But Jesus uses a more subtle image, a mustard seed. Despite humble and small beginnings, make no mistake, the growth of the kingdom will be surprising, and it will not be small when it's complete. In the same way you might ask how the smallest seed can produce the largest plant in the garden, so too the God will prove to be magnificent. But its growth, again, doesn't happen overnight. And I would argue, based on the parable of growth in 26 through 29, that it's not really observable either. It just happens. Just imagine for a moment being a member of Mark's church in Rome during the reign of Emperor Nero. At the height of Roman civilization, with its magnificent armies and roads, architecture and art, 
at a time when Christians were fed to lions and burned at the stake for entertainment. And people were supposed to believe that the kingdom of God had arrived. Based on Jesus' teaching, their church, and I would say ours as well, can take comfort that while the kingdom of God may appear small and insignificant to us, it will outgrow and overshadow every other kingdom in time. That fully grown plant is a parallel to Old Testament prophetic imagery. Throughout a number of prophets, this language of planting a tree that rises above all the rest and gives shade to the others, large enough to be a home for the birds in the air, is common. All the birds of the air represent other kingdoms of the world, meaning the kingdom of God is not to be limited to Israel or to ethnically Jews, but will be including Gentiles as well. Salvation for all people. Daniel 4.10 is one place you can find this imagery if you want to look it up later. This picture articulates that the kingdom of God, when it's fully grown, will tower over every other kingdom that ever was. And this is why we don't put our trust in movements or culture wars or anything except the promises of God. Because looks can be deceiving. Brothers and sisters, the future is not up for grabs. The Lord is in control. And in his timing, he will bring all things to completion. So beware of living in response to the way the world is turning, rather than in response to the word of God, which endures forever. In the last few verses, we get another summary of the way Jesus spoke to his disciples. Parables continue to serve their purpose of revealing and concealing. And I'd like to point out that it's okay if you don't feel like you understand everything about these parables or the kingdom of God or Christianity or the Bible. Jesus was patient with his disciples as they sought to know more. He says he spoke to them as they were able to hear. So sufficient for us are the things that have been revealed to us. So, brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is not a mystery. Instead, it has been made manifest in the person of Jesus. It's not a building or a place, but a people who rely on the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. He is the light of the world that shines in the darkness. Nor is the kingdom of God man-made. It can't be manufactured. Its growth comes from God. So we can rest confidently trusting the power of God's word to complete it. And the kingdom of God is not massive. It may appear to be the smallest on earth, but it will grow to be monumental. And we can be encouraged that no matter the size or stage of growth visible to us, the future is certain. One day, Christ will return to judge the world and bring us home to heaven. And that day, what's invisible now will become visible as we gaze at the throne of God Almighty and the Lamb, singing, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. That's the tenth time hearing has been emphasized in this chapter. Jesus teaches in a way that 
confronts us with what he has revealed. And it's up to us how we respond to it. So the main takeaway is that the kingdom of God may appear small and stagnant, but its growth is inevitable and its future is certain. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the light of the world who illuminates the darkness. Help us to cherish your word. Help us to share it with others. We pray that we would not hide the message of salvation under a basket, but that we would hold it out for all to see. We pray that you would protect us from thinking that the growth of the kingdom depends on us, on how well we articulate things or how often we bring up God's word to others. Help us to have humility and to trust in you. We pray that we would not rely on our own efforts, but that we would trust in your promises. And we pray that you would guide us in this life to love you and your word all the more. Amen.